uh, I attempted, it was like my second attempt um, in my life. And uh, I was in a coma for two days. They started hugging me and they're crying and I started crying. But it was also this awareness that they were crying for a very different reason than I was crying. I was crying because I was still here. They were crying because they were thankful I was still here. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, hey, I want to welcome Erez Sheck to the show, to the Depression Files, also known as Erez the Sheck Check Sheck. <laughs> so, uh, Erez, hey, I am so glad you're joining me tonight on the, on the Depression Files. Thank you for your time. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, so uh, I am particularly excited because you are an incredible advocate around mental illness and... You know, the, the videos, the advocating, the tweeting, and, and everything that I see your name often. I retweet your stuff. I really appreciate I know you help spread the word about my um, advocacy as well. So to actually have you on the air is a great pleasure. So thank you again for being here. Well, thank you. And thank you for all that you do, you know, bringing um, bring awareness, uh, you know, surrounding mental illness, but depression especially, and, and also men. Um, you know, your focus is uh, so heavily on men speaking out and talking, and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. So I appreciate what you do. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just sharing a bit about yourself just uh, on the personal side of things. Oh, I don't like to get personal. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> that would be kind of in the face of everything I do. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's see. Uh, I was... I kind of dealt with emotional issues all throughout life and bullying, um, which led me to start therapy at a very young point in life. Um, and then in my junior year of college, I was failing out and um, my parents wanted to get me tested for a learning disability. And I went to a specialist and a psychologist and we did a couple days of testing. And uh, we found out that I was actually, uh, that I was uh, diagnosed with bipolar disorder. How old were you at the time? Um, I was just about to turn 21. Okay. So it was about 15 years ago. I, it'll be 16 years uh, in June. That sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like a fairly typical age for a bipolar diagnosis, would you say? Yeah, it, uh, it is, unfortunately, because, <laughs> um, you know, I think it actually, when I look back, it really started presenting itself in high school. Um, but not to the extent that it, it got to, you know, uh, by my junior year in college, um, you know, even in high school, I was, uh, put on antidepressants and, and things like that, um, when I was going to therapy and I was going to a psychiatrist, but it really doesn't, I mean, for me, it didn't really get more intense until college to that point because, you know, antidepressants typically induce mania. Uh, with bipolar disorder. So if I was taking it in high school and it wasn't really uh, putting me in a manic state, 
then it probably didn't start forming until college. Oh, that's a really good point. Or started intensifying until college. Right. I do hear, you know, I've met several men who talk about um, a misdiagnosis of depression, getting put on antidepressants, and then going into like a really intense mania. And uh, so I hear what you're saying, that that is probably what would have happened had it actually been bipolar disorder at, at the time you were in high school, getting exactly. antidepressants. Yeah. Um, what, uh, can you describe a bit about your high school days? Like, did you realize you were depressed at the time or is that more looking back and what kind of symptoms were you experiencing? Well, I was always, I mean, since, since sixth grade, I was always in therapy, um, and dealing with emotional issues and something I was super aware of was anxiety and, um, my anxiety often led to depression and my depression often led to the anxiety and kind of intermixed with itself. So it was something I was always super aware of and self-conscious of as well. And it affected, I had a lot of problems with my studies in, in high school. Um, well, all throughout life, pretty much I always had issues with, with my studies. Um, I was always more dedicated to like theater and singing because that was the stuff my heart was in. Um, but you know, I think dealing with depression and dealing with anxiety and, you know, an undiagnosed bipolar eventually, it became really difficult to be able to concentrate and do the things that, um, I should have been able to do at the time. And so I hear you saying, uh, lack of concentration struggles with academics in high school, any other, uh, kind of examples of how the anxiety or the depression would manifest at that point in high school? I had a lot of uh, sleeping issues. I, um, I, I mean, I just basically couldn't sleep. I actually remember that I would often take NyQuil at night and it became a regular thing for me because if I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to fall asleep. Um, insomnia was a huge thing for me and I'm sure that probably didn't help with my anxiety. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Your anxiety, your depression, anything, right? I mean, sleep, I, it seems to me that sleep is one of the first things doctors try to get under control. If you're talking depression and and probably bipolar disorder as well. I I would say yes to both. I mean, cause even when I started taking meds for bipolar disorder, um, one of the main things they or that I was put on was something to help with sleep because my sleep has always been I've always it's always been hard for me to fall asleep um, unless I'm actually in a deep depression and if I'm in a deep depression uh, good luck waking me up or getting me off the couch or the bed right right um, so were your grades taking a big hit in high school I bet always yeah I was actually put into this like special program Um, which I like for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it anymore, but it was for people who had not learning disabilities, but emotional, uh, issues that were affecting their work, but it wasn't like called that it was kind of like undercover with it. (laughs) Um, so it was basically like simpler classes or simpler, um, classes to get me through the math and the history and the science, um, so I could basically graduate. And I got to take the SATs um, with a longer period of time okay. to take them. Great. I think it was on because I couldn't, because I was seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist, um, they allowed me to have that extra time for my anxiety. Nice. And uh, did you find 
those types of accommodations supportive for you? They were. Um, they're also they they were. Uh, well, the SATs, yes. With the special class, like it was cool to meet people. We never like sat there. It was not like a group therapy type thing where we would sit and talk about our emotions. We just went to like a, it was a smaller like ten people maybe, and um, it was less stress almost because there wasn't so many people and you weren't and you were comfortable with those people, so you didn't feel so self conscious um, with things. Uh, but at the same time, you were ki- it kind of felt like you were you know pushed aside in the school. Right, uh, right. Because you were always in that classroom. Were there people in the school that you could talk to, um, whether they were counselors or teachers or social workers, about what was going on at the time? Um, we had we had uh, counselors. Uh, to you know, I because I had a therapist, I didn't so much. I I would go to the counselors, but they weren't honestly. They weren't. I don't remember them being that helpful. Um, there was kind of a detachment from, from things and they weren't, uh, compassionate and they weren't patient. And that was something that I pick up on super fast with people. And I always have. So it made me not want, it made me feel like I could not want to go to them, but it was also cause I had trouble with bullies as well. Okay. And they weren't, the school wasn't as super receptive to taking care of those things. But on the other hand of things, like I was lucky to have made friends outside of that class as well because I was doing theater and I was in the choir. So I had people to go to, um, but I also had my therapist as well. So that sounds good. And then you finally made it through high school. And at that point, you like you said, you're seeing a therapist, you're taking some medication. um, And do you jump right into college? I did. I went right into college. It was about an hour away from where I went to high school. Um, and I loved it, um, at first, <laughs> I mean, I loved the, I loved college completely. Um, I didn't so much like the classes apparently. Uh-huh. Were you living, <laughs> living at home or living on campus? No, I, I lived on campus. It was a, it was a new adjustment for me because, well, I mean, it was just, a, I think anybody going to college, it's a new adjustment, uh, living in the dorms. And, uh, my first year I had, uh, a roommate and, you know, that's hard to adjust to as well, um, not ever having a roommate before. Um, and then my sophomore year, I actually had a single, so that was great. But I really, in college, I started being able to explore, um, like who, like I felt a lot more freer in college. Um, literally two weeks into college, I, uh, came out of the closet as gay and that was kind of a huge weight off me that I didn't know was even on me. Wow. So, so you don't think, um, being gay was any of your issues with depression or challenges in high school, or do you think it could have been, uh, I think it probably was. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that's a, there's, you know, there's, it's an amazingly heavy weight to carry. Um, even if you are around people who are like, no, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. It's still like other people's acceptance of it is often different from your own acceptance of things. And so whether, and it makes it harder if you're in a society or community that is not accepting of it, but it still takes you time to get to that place where you can say it. And I think that was, I mean, that's, that's literally a secret that you're holding from yourself and you're holding it from the people around you. So, so 
I'm most positive that it weighed down on me um, in in the form of depression and definitely anxiety as well. Yeah, I would think so. Um, so you said two weeks only into college and you came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, I joke about it. I, I can't like two weeks into college. I was like, Hey guys, I think I'm, I'm bisexual. And then like an hour later I was like, no, I'm gay. I'm definitely <laughs> gay. And, um, it was just like one of those things where I, I think being away from everything I knew, mm. uh, you know, and, just discovering things a little more, just even in like going out and going to a party and, and, or being able to just walk around and you're like, I don't have to be home at a certain time. There's a freedom to it. And so I think that spoke to me on a, on another level where I saw all these kind this kind of acceptance around me and this freedom around me. And it felt like it was okay to even admit to myself and admit to the people around me. And I remember saying to someone, uh, like a, a friend I had made um, within those two weeks, I was like, so yeah, yeah, I'm gay. And they're like, uh-huh. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Everyone knew, right? I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> that is like, funny. Yeah. But it was, but it was a good response. Cause it was like, everyone did know. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knew and it wasn't a big yeah. deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how did it feel when you first came out then? And I mean, it seems like a response like that would be pretty comforting. It was like uh, there, it it felt like like I said, it it was a, a freedom that yeah. I felt, and it did feel like a weight was like off my shoulders, um, you know. But then it was also kind of well, okay, it's easy to talk to these people around me, right? Um, who you know have been thinking I've been openly gay forever, um, who are like, oh yeah, of course you are, but it then there was that anxiety whether it was necessary or not anxiety doesn't really care um to tell you know my family members to tell my mom to tell my dad to tell my sisters um to tell my friends back in 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 like high school and from when i was younger right. although you know they pretty much knew as well so how did your family still, respond and, and how much longer after the two weeks at college did you take to tell your family uh, well, the good thing about being in college was you didn't have to tell the people like in your family right away because you're not seeing them right. um, necessarily. And with my mom and my dad, I wanted to tell them in person. Um, my sisters, it didn't really matter so much, I guess. And uh, one sister, and it's like I joke about this now, um, but she goes, you know, uh, well, because I had not really ever had any experience with girls before. Um, before I'd come out even. Right. And she asked me, um, well, how do you know you're gay if you've never been with a girl? And so I kind of just came right back at her with, you know, how do you know you're not gay if you've never been with a girl? Yeah. Right. And that kind of shut that one down. (laughs) Um, my other sister was like, cool. Uh, my mom, it's, they all, I mean, my parents, they had a feeling they knew, you know, um, it was just saying those words. Uh, and I remember I actually told my mom and my dad separately, but I knew my mom had already told my dad. Um, and I remember we were, I, it was the worst timing for me to do it as well. I was about to go do a show that night in college. Um, and my parents came up to see the show and they took me out to dinner first. 
and we're driving back, we're driving to the school from the restaurant. And I'm like, I'm going to tell him right before I, like right before he drops me off. That's a great idea to do a show like that. <laughs> and, um, and basically I sat in the back seat and I just said in my head, one, two, three, dad, I'm gay. And he was like, okay. And it didn't actually really matter what his reaction was. Cause I just started crying anyways. It was, it I, it was an emotional release because he was like the final person I had to tell. Um, and even though I knew my mom had probably told him already, um, it was important for me to actually say it to him. Right. And what did you, so you, I know, like you mentioned, it was a large emotional re, uh, release for you and there were tears and stuff. Uh, was it a, a response that you were expecting from him? I think I no, Cause I, you know, my, well, my dad is, was not ever hugely, you know, like, you know, I'm a man and this is how it has to be, you know, <laughs> like right, right. he wasn't, you know, that version of what we consider masculinity, I guess. Um, and, but at the same time he came from, you know, a small community in Israel and, um, and that kind of, you know, I know at that time it wasn't very open in that sense. Right. And I was also worried because I'm the last Sheck. I'm the last in the line. So I felt on some weird level that there is this pressure on me because I have to have a kid and I have to have a son. And by me saying I'm gay, you know, at that time, and it was, it was like 1999, um, the idea of me having kids eventually at some point was even more, you know, not possible or not right. legitimate or whatever. So I was expecting him to flip out and I was expecting that to be a heavier thing on me that like, how are we going to continue the chef name? And, um, it didn't, it, that didn't matter to him. Um, I mean it did, but it didn't matter to him in the sense where I was holding myself back in any way for right. that. Oh, so a, I feel extremely lucky in that sense. Yeah. And they've been supportive ever since. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. I mean, there hasn't really been a, you know, a chance for them not to be, I guess. Right. They've right. been, you know, um, I've actually faced more issues with like, uh, like one of my sisters than I have with my parents. So, okay. all right. Um, so two weeks into college, you, yes. uh, you come out and, uh, and share with folks that you're gay. Um, what else happens with the college experience and, and where are you at mentally, uh, at this point? So mentally I was self-medicating a lot because I wasn't going to therapy. I would go to the school uh, counselor every now and then, but there wasn't, uh, with the school counselor there, um, it wasn't very, I, I don't know, it was very just talk and that was it. Not therapeutic. And not therapeutic. It was very just like, I, I call that kind of therapist or counselor like a coffee talk therapist, like almost like going to a coffee shop with your friend and just talking Right. versus like, like working on things to, you know, get to a better place to, I, I don't know. Now I believe in 
the power of actually working on things that you need to be able to talk things out, but you also need to be able to tackle them. Yeah. Um, if you want to, if you want healing or growth or whatever. Um, and when you, and, a couple quick questions here. So, um, you weren't really, you weren't seeing a therapist anymore, just that counselor. And you right. talked about self-medicating. Um, are you talking alcohol? Are you talking hard drugs, marijuana? What kind of was, self-medicating? I was self-medicating with cannabis and, um, and it wasn't much, I, I've never been much of a drinker. So it was always my, my go-to is cannabis, which ended up making sense once I was diagnosed with, um, bipolar because it sometimes can like fine. I, when I was, when I had like, you know, smoked, I felt not only calmer, but I also felt just more grounded and it never made me feel like that lazy feeling that, you know, you often hear about, or I mean, it's pretty prevalent with cannabis, but I never felt those typical things from getting high. I just felt grounded and I felt normal basically. So when I was diagnosed and the, and the psychologist had said, well, I think you're self-medicating with, you know, cannabis. Um, you know, I was like, oh, well I do feel more normal when I, when I've smoked it. So I would imagine like, I, I don't want to, you know, promote, marijuana as um <laughs> something to self-medicate oh, but no, i would think no, it would take no, the no. i think it would take the edge off of anxiety for sure it, it can to me although um, although you hear the, about the paranoia it brings on too so right it's um, funny because now um like years and years later i actually because i live in california i worked at a medicinal marijuana dispensary okay and so i learned a lot about um like it's like what it can do and stuff and um, it's interesting because I wouldn't go and suggest it to someone dealing with like mental health, like a, a mental illness because, well, at least with bipolar, because, you know, sometimes it can actually induce mania um, if it's like a certain level of THC or whatever. But, um, but yeah, it does with the anxiety. It can, ca it, it calmed me down and uh, it, it just made me feel I felt normal for some, like I, I always remember looking back and being like, I feel like a normal person right now right. with no idea what actually normal meant because throughout my whole life, I've never felt normal. Right. So I'm like, I don't know where I, I found the comparison with normal, but I did. That's interesting. <laughs> and so age 20, um, was when you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder and that was, um, while you were in college, correct? Correct. Yeah. So what, uh, what brought you finally to a therapist or anything more than the self-medicating and the counselor? Uh, well, because I was, because I was failing out of, uh, I was failing out of college and my parents thought maybe it's a learning disability. So we went to, you know, a psychologist and a specialist and they did testing and, um, it wasn't a learning disability. I had just been self-medicating with the cannabis and also was, you know, uh, suffering from bipolar disorder and not medicated for it. Um, so that's when, once I got that diagnosis, um, and I had pretty much at that point, uh, learned that I had completely failed out of college. So I moved in with my parents who had now moved to Chicago and, um, and then I took it from there with a psychiatrist there to start treatment. So it's really interesting. You were, were you literally being assessed for a learning disorder or was this just a general type of assessment? 
You know, I think I thought it was for a learning disorder. I mean, I, I it was, but I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe they there was other stuff that they just didn't want to tell me that they were okay. testing for. Right. Because that I remember sitting there and and having like some questions like, do you hear voices? Do you hear, you know, all these questions um, besides like the ink blots and so many. There were so many different parts of it. It was like two days long, wow. basically, um, where. I would just sit in the office with the psychologist and go over stuff. It was exhausting. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and you know, there's like a 30 page report with a full diagnosis of like my personality and of the bipolar disorder. And when you heard the term bipolar disorder at age 20, were you aware of what that meant? And, and what was that like? I mean, in your mind, you're going to, to see if you have a learning disability right. and, all, and all of a sudden they're throwing out this huge term of bipolar disorder. Right. I mean, I had a very stigmatized view of it at the time. Um, mm. Like the stuff that I talk about now, telling people not to say or, you know, and whatever, like, it's the very things that I would actually, like, joke about. And I mean, I always used humor with things. So it was never this big fear about it. It was kind of like an understanding of what it is a base understanding of what it is at the time and then making stigmatized jokes like, Oh my God, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like the weather or I'm two faced. I'm like Jekyll and Hyde. Um, which is funny. Cause like years later I do videos talking about not saying those things. Right. So that was how you addressed it in the beginning when you were diagnosed with humor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's been my go-to. Yeah. Well, uh, were you, uh, I mean, you you knew the term bipolar disorder. I'm not sure at age 20 if I would have known. Um, um, I meant. did because because I had spent so many years in therapy and with psychiatrists, right? And talking about like dep- like way 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 before that, and talking about depression and anxiety and all that stuff, like all those things were. I was super aware of them. Okay. You know, um, did I have much knowledge of it? No, right. but. Um, but I was aware of them. And you know? do you recall sitting there and hearing these words like you have bipolar disorder and, and what kind of feeling came across? Um, yeah, I do. It's it's weird because I was in my it was because it was my junior year. I was actually in an off campus apartment and the we were doing the I was getting the diagnosis. It was going to be over the phone, like a, a conference call, because my parents were in Chicago. The psychiat- the psychologist was in California, and I was in Pennsylvania at that time. And so we did it over the phone. And I, I, I remember like when I heard it, there, it was, it was tears. Um, it was it wasn't like full out crying, but it was, it was just like tearing up. And I think it was this combination of like what just happened? What has been going on? And also these kind of running thoughts of like, why didn't we catch this before? It was like all these things that kind of passed through my brain all at once that like, I only was able to identify later on. And it was, it was scary. Um, and my mom sounded, you know, she was on the phone and my parents sounded cool and collected. And, you know, the doctor was like, I think, we need to send you to a uh, a wilderness program to get you off of the cannabis for detox, and I thought that was weird, and um, and then I went and joked about it with my friends who were sitting outside in my living room, 
and because that's what I do. And that was, that was basically it. It was, it was confusion. And then it was like, okay, got, you know, it wasn't even got to deal with it. It's like, okay, well, this is how it is. Um, but it took years and years and years of actual like work to find actual acceptance with it. Cause that was just like surface level acceptance. And that must have been really tough to have your family on the phone rather than there with you. It, it was, it was weird because I, you know, my friends were like in the next room, I was in my bedroom, but it was like, because I was receiving this news, um, by myself and there was nobody to, I never really actually thought about this at 20 years Um, old. I never thought about this. This is so interesting. I, it, now that I'm thinking about it, it did feel really alone. And so I did feel like I had to just kind of go back out into the living room afterwards and make a joke about it. Cause that's kind of how I was coping with it, but I didn't have anyone around me to hug me or, um, you know, and I kind of blocked off that compassion or hug from my friends by instantly making a joke about it. Right. Right. Well, that's how you dealt with a lot of it in the beginning. It sounds like, um, but that was my thought too. Like, man, what a time to, to need a hug from your mom or your dad. And you're hearing this, uh, on your own. That must, yeah, it must've been scary. And like you said, all those different thoughts going through your head, what does this mean? And, uh, so take us from that point. So this is your junior year. You get diagnosed with bipolar disorder. What steps do you take then? And did you go to the detox place like was recommended? So I get to Chicago where my parents were living. Oh, that's right. So you instantly dropped out essentially. Is that right? Or withdrew? Right. It was, it was around June. It was June. So classes were over, but I had already failed out. And, um, so it was basically just, you know, moving at that point. And, um, I get to Chicago and I'm supposed to go two days later to this, like, it's like a three month wilderness program Wow! and at, which scared the, like scared the hell out of me. Cause I'm not that I, that's not, I was like, Oh, I'll learn survival skills. That's great. This is kind of weird. Um, it was just cannabis and, <laughs> and, um, and I was supposed to go two days later, but I made a deal with my parents. I was like, what if I just like go see a psychiatrist and get treated for this and I just don't smoke? Um, and like, can't we just do that? Um, and they agreed to it. Oh, um, cool. Which was great. You were kind of uh, like, then, look, I, I'm barely, I just turned 20. I just, just, you know, shared with everybody I'm a gay man and now you're sending me right. to a wilderness survival camp? <laughs> like, what's good? Well, it's actually funny because I made a, a joke with my friends at the time. I was like, yeah, they're sending me to a camp. It's called Getting Things Straight. And we joked about it because it was like, it's not about being gay, but still like, (laughs) you know, like they're sending me to like a conversion camp or something. Right. But um, so, yeah, I went to a psychiatrist in the Chicago area and he decided to ignore the diagnosis. Wow. Really? Yeah. Um, And it's like this 30 page, like huge thing with like, you know, the diagnosis and, you know, personality, et cetera. And he decides to just put me on an antidepressant and an Am- and Ambien. Oh my goodness. So were your parents aware of this? They were aware of what he was giving me and they, I mean, you know, they can't, I mean, they couldn't really do anything. I thought, you know, I thought I was in good hands. We all thought we were in good hands. Right. Um, which is 
like the sucky part because I think you always think you're in good hands potentially. Yeah. But um, it sent me straight into into mania, and it also sent me into an actual addiction to Ambien. Wow. And because it kind of continued for a while um, without him switching out to different meds. And so I started getting addicted to Ambien and finding ways to get it from other doctors. And um, then a few months later, I actually went to a rehab uh, for that. And that's when they actually got me stable on, uh, on bipolar medication. So they, they were working at getting you off the Ambien and they realized, no, this, this actually was accurate. He does have bipolar disorder. We're going to change up the meds and get him treated properly. Correct. Yeah. Uh, wow. That is a lot. And it was really through. weird. At, yeah. It was really weird in rehab because like I, it, I just didn't feel like <laughs> I felt out of place because um, I did have an addiction and I, you know, and I'm. And I dealt with it, but my stuff was always dealing with the bipolar because it kept on going untreated. So it was, it was, the, the rehab was great because it did work on like getting me detoxed from that stuff. But it also, it was, since it was dual diagnosis, like it dealt with so many things I hadn't started to deal with, which was the acceptance and learning about bipolar disorder in its totality. And, you know, also exploring different things with relationships in my family and stuff. So it was strictly just to get you off the Ambien, really, the program? Basically, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. others were in that program with you for other different types of drugs? Yeah, that was because I even when I went there, they didn't put me in the detox. There's like a there was a detox area. OK, um, like like hardcore detoxing. And um, I didn't go in that in there. I went into like straight into like the like five beds in a room thing. And, um, but there were people there, you know, you know, meth and cocaine and, um, you know, opiates and alcohol and all that stuff. And then there um, you are with so, the, uh, ambient. <laughs> right. I felt so, I felt really, um, like I just felt less than them because of it. <laughs> like I was just like, Oh, what are you addicted to? Ambien? Are you kidding me? Are you here for Ambien? And I was like, I'm like, I'm, if you heard the whole story, <laughs> the doctor, <laughs> you know, so it was like, so I always felt like I was like, I was like, I'm not a real addict. I'm sorry. Um, but even like after that, I started going, I like when I'm after the, the, the rehab, I went to, um, I went back home and I start like my parents and, uh, you know, the new doctor were like, well, you need to go to, to meetings now. So I actually spent like seven years after I turned 21 <laughs> of like sobriety. Wow. Because wow. I, li because I, I'm not saying I wasn't an addict. Right. I'm just saying like, um, I think I was led into a false sense of belief that I wasn't, uh, I was a hardcore addict. Um, not that there, I don't judge that in any way, right. but, um, I went to meetings, you know, and, um, I look back and I'm kind of like, oh, so I remember one night I was like, I'm just going to try to have a drink because drinking wasn't my thing ever. So I had a drink. I'm not suggesting this, by the way, I'm not suggesting this to people who have addiction. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I did and it was, and it was, you know, it was fine for me and I haven't had, um, you know, really any issues with that, but I would really like to say I'm not saying go and do that. Right. We'll try it. 
to people who are dealing with addiction problems. Yeah. I th- I think it seems like, um, and I don't know a lot about addiction, but it does seem like certain people have a propensity uh, um, to become addicted to things. So like yeah. if you do get addicted easily to cigarettes, the, there's a higher likelihood that you may be, come addicted to alcohol or another drug. Um, It's true. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, like I was using the Ambien to bring me down from the mania from the antidepressant, right? Just like I was using the cannabis to self-medicate before I was diagnosed. So not to say that's not an addiction. I think it very much was an addiction, but it was also an addiction of my circumstance. Um, So, and I, I know that I do have like, I'm an, I have an addictive personality. Everybody just wants to be around me. <laughs> right. right. Um, so we're, when you say uh, the sobriety and the meetings, are those AA meetings then? Um, I started going to AA meetings and then I wasn't a fan because, um, because it was very religious. Right. And I didn't think of going to any other kind of meetings. Um, I was like, hey, that's what everyone goes to, even though it's not alcohol. But I feel weird because I wasn't a drinker and I wasn't – that's not why I'm here. Um, so I – and it felt very religious and there's nothing wrong with you know being religious. But I, if I was going to seek help, I wanted to be a little more spiritual than religious-based. Um, so I went – actually, ironically, went to N.A. Um, because N.A. felt a little less um, all about God. Right. Right. And you found those meetings helpful and supportive? Yeah, I made a lot of good friends there. It was a good way to find a different community in Chicago. Um, And um, I mean, my community was basically people in theater, which I love, but it was kind of ended up becoming a way to make friends. So it ended up working out. But it was cool because it was like every Friday. This is what I do every this day, you know. Um, hey, let's get dinner before. And it actually helped me find a community of friends. So that was kind of what was wonderful about it is the community that forms around those things. Right. Oh, it sounds like a, yeah, an awesome way to start working at recovery. Um, yeah. So take us from there. So you're now you're finally getting treated properly, right? After the recovery of Ambien. Yeah. Yeah, right. And you're getting uh, getting treated for bipolar disorder. Are you going through swings of moods and, and such at this point? Uh, at that point, no. Once I'd become like, you know, stabilized on the medication, um, the one I think the hardest thing to get used to was the fact that, I mean, with bipolar disorder, you're not always constantly on the same exact cocktail or dosages because it's a chemical imbalance and an imbalance imbalances again. So, you know, it, there would be times where I, you know, I'd have to start watching, um, or my therapist would have to start watching, um, for, you know, the mood, mood swings or dips in my mood to see if there needed to be, um, adjustment, um, of medication management basically. So what would be some of those indicators for you? Uh, for me, it's definitely, uh, what I've learned now because I started looking back so I could, so I could know better and not just have to count on other people to see them, which I mean, other people seeing them is very helpful, but it's also good if you can start seeing the signs, um, I found. And, you know, for me, it, I start, uh, having a lack of sleep or restlessness, 
um, my mind starts kind of racing a little faster, but it's different than when I go into full mania. When I go into full mania, it's like so fast. It's like like fast forward fast. And um, if that made any sense, because I just pictured a VHS. Like, you know, <laughs> when you were, when you forward it, um, it makes that sound. Um, so it's like this kind of just little speed up in my thoughts because I usually hit mania before I hit depression. Okay. And, um, and some with mania, I'll typically also, uh, lose some appetite. So if I start noticing that I'm not eating as much, like, you know, it's some, it's such like a weird thing to suddenly start noticing. But, uh, if my appetite is not there as much, um, it's sometimes, you know, is, is a sign for me. Okay. It's also a sign of depression too, for me. And, and so then you instantly go in to see the psychiatrist and do an, a meds adjustment. Well, I go. I'm, I typically went to my therapist first to see if, um, or emailed or called my therapist first, um, because if you know, just to see, it, am I, you know, off on this? Um, now a days, uh, typically we go and check my blood levels. Like I go get blood tests done, and see because you can see with my medication if the levels have changed um, with the medication and my blood. So you can actually have like a more visual view, not of the bipolar, but if something has changed chemically. Yeah. So um, what are they looking for in the blood? Do you know? That I have no, that I leave to the professionals. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't realize you could do a blood test then and, and they can adjust. Well, it's the not med- a blood test. It's not a blood test for the bipolar to see like the chemicals in the bipolar. Right. It's to check the med, my medication levels because I have to take okay. blood tests every three months. Right. Um, to check if everything is like, you know, leveled with my medication anyways. Uh-huh. And if there's a change in the levels, because they should be staying the same, right. it is a sign to my psychiatrist that, you yeah. know, there might be something that we need to adjust. Is, uh, is lithium one of your medications? It is, yes. Yeah, so lithium, I have read about needing to do the blood checks and the level yeah. checks and... Um, and I, you know, I don't know if you've ever re- read the book, um, An Unquiet Mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm, that's a wonderful book. Yeah, I'm almost done with that, and that's really where I learned about the, you know, check the level, different levels of blood, and and yeah. the importance of staying on the medication. Yeah, I, I, the one thing I've been very good at is not going off the medication because I think there's been this, like, gratitude towards it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, that like, yeah, it has worked. You know, there are horrible side effects sometimes on some of these medications, on a lot of these medications, but it ultimately is is doing something good for me and so i appreciate that so i've never been to a place um i don't remember a time where i've stopped taking my medication i know a lot of people struggle with that um and have like decided to go off of it because of the way it makes them feel and everything and i know it can be i know that feeling where you just want to stop taking them but i know that feeling of what happens when you're not on them and I don't want that ever again. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard a couple of different um, scenarios of, of stopping medication. One, like you said, because of the way it makes them feel or the side effects. I've also heard some people say they decide they don't want to take medication when they're in a mania because it's actually feels they want good. To and they, yeah, that's the thing. Like, and it they feels want to experience that, particularly after a depression. It 
that's the thing. It feels good at first, but then it goes to a bad place. So like, and that was like, you know, but it's hard. It's also hard to take your medication when you're in an episode. Oh, I'm sure. Um, because at least for me, like, um, that kind of self care becomes very difficult, especially if you're alone. And it sounds so simple. Just take your medication. But I mean, you, you know, with depression, it's, almost impossible to get out of that bed or get out of a chair or get off the couch, um, to eat, to do anything. So to go and get your medication or, uh, you know, pick it up at the pharmacy or even go across the room to pick it up is, is a lot of work it seems. And with mania for me, you know, the other side of it is it's very hazy for me my mania. So yeah, there's like in the beginning, there's this, you know, you know, euphoria in a sense, but then it kind of goes to that bad place with me because I stop being able to remember, like it goes very hazy and I look back and it's hard to actually remember what I did or what I'm doing. Mm. I'm not like flat out blackouts, but just this kind of like, you're, you're kind of just in this cloud almost. Right. But it's not like a depression cloud because that's heavier. The mania cloud is like, just like you're, fl- you're flying. Um, you know, I never asked, uh, whether you have bipolar one or bipolar two, uh, bipolar one, bipolar one and, uh, bipolar one. Can you explain the, the difference briefly? Uh, with bipolar one, basically it, uh, you know what's funny is like it's horrible because I talk about this stuff and I even get confused. But I know with with bipolar one, it's you know, I think it's longer period. At least with me, it's longer periods of depression and shorter periods of mania. Um, and then with bipolar two, it's more rapid cycling. Okay. I think um, one of the differences I had heard too is that bipolar one, I believe. Um, has more intense, um, there's more intensity in the manias. It, like I, my manias are, I mean, they're just nuts and that's why I don't enjoy, like I understand how people enjoy them at some point, but I look back and they're, they're painful to even try to look back on because I don't remember so many parts of them, but they're, it's intense. Like if, can you, you can you describe that, that intensity? Like, Take us through one of your manias if you can. Um, it's, I mean, it's difficult because they're so scattered with the, with what happens because it's so hazy. But, um, like I said, it's, it's, it's rapid thoughts. I know that I've been, you know, more promiscuous at those times, but it's very difficult to go back and look at them because I don't remember so much of them. Do you worry then? Like, Hmm, what did I do? Well, I, I do, you know, and when I was living in Chicago, I remember, you know, after, after an episode and, you know, you know, getting back on, on track, I would look, this was like right after, like, this was right when I started being on Facebook and this was like years and years and years ago. And I would look at my like status updates and I would look at like people I messaged on Facebook messenger and they weren't sentences and there weren't there they weren't like they weren't actual words they were just like jumbled up uh letters 
Um, and I thought I was talking to people. I thought I was saying like sentences and things to people, but it was all jumbled up because, I mean, I don't know why, because it was mania, but it was like this sense where I was trying to get words out of me and I was trying to type them, but I couldn't get actual words out of me. I don't even like, I don't even know what those words were. Right. How long does a typical mania for you last? Um, for me, it, I mean, it differs. It's, um, it's been a while, but, um, I first, like, it always feels like it's about a week, two weeks. It always depends on how fast I get to my psychiatrist. Um, if I get to my psychiatrist and, um, you know, I'm being responsible with it, um, to that extent in time, um, then shorter, but it just depends on, you know, when I see my therapist or when I would see my therapist or when I would see my psychiatrist. Um, and it was usually my therapist first because I would see my ther- my therapist every week. So he would be able to see um, the signs um, if I came in and I was manic or whatever. And then just get me straight to my psychiatrist to change the meds. Right. And so it could be up to two weeks where you're sleeping very little, I'm guessing. and Yeah. Um, so you're up most of the day. Thoughts are, are racing and... I mean, you're communicating with people and not even really realizing it. Have you ever, I mean, are there times where you wake up somewhere where you didn't even know you were or, or somebody tells you about a conversation they engaged with you or anything like that? There was, but you know, for me where I kind of feel like I was lucky, um, is my initial, like I, I, I never went outside of like a, uh, I guess a comfort zone, which would basically mean like I never left my apartment as soon as I started feeling those things. Like even if I wasn't aware it was mania, there was this innate feeling to stay put. And so things I would get things to come to me or I would just stay in that room and kind of stick to my computer. Um, so I somehow developed like an innate sense to not go outside and stay safe in that. But yeah, conversations on the phone, on messenger, um, I wouldn't, you know, remember it. And it was, like I said, it wasn't straight up blackouts. It's just this haziness and this cloud that uh, kind of, you know, was energized, but is still, you know, to this day, it's every time I think about it, I, I can't remember exact details. I just can remember a moment of me walking around my apartment or trying to, you know, rearrange a couch or move a couch or uh, be on the computer there's just these kind of splotches of, of memories. Right. And um, do you always have uh, a mania and depression together? Yes, always. Okay. So if you have one, you know the other one's coming. Basically. And is it always uh, the same one first? It's, it's all, for me, it's always been mania first. Okay. Yeah. And then you go into a depression. And what uh, can you describe the depressions? Are those really deep, dark depressions? And are they typically the same level? Um, they're, they've been different throughout like the years, basically. Um, the manias have always remained pretty similar. The depressions have differed in like, I guess, heaviness. Um, and it, I just remember the one I remember, you know, just like the strongest, I think, at least relating to bipolar was, um, it was also, it was in Chicago and I remember being on my bed and not being able to move. 
and not being able I felt like glued to the bed I not even glued I just felt like there was a weight on me that I couldn't get out of bed and I remember sleeping a lot and just the day passing by um I remember like you know I I lived in a studio and the TV was on in the back in in like the background and I remember waking up and like the, a Gilmore Girls marathon was on and and I was like oh I don't want to watch this um but the remote is all the way on the other side of the room so i'll just lay here and listen to the gilmore girls marathon and and i it's just this you know and not eat, to get myself to eat is was ridiculous and i was you know at this point i was alone in my apartment in chicago my parents had moved back to california at that point um or yeah, to california and um I I had friends, but it was really difficult. It's it's really difficult in depression to reach out. In mania, it seems really easy to reach out, but not to say that you're in trouble. Right. In depression, you can't reach out at all. It's yeah. too hard. It is really hard, and it's really detrimental not to. Right, and it's it's like you have to like, and it's so hard to, you know, like you know that, but at the same time, you're just like. It, it seems next to impossible, but right. you, you, you're able to, that's the thing. Like we just feel like we are so weighed out. We just have to make that reach. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had uh, suicidal ideations? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, when, when I started going to therapy in sixth grade, it was because I had, I tried to attempt uh, suicide and wow. then in sixth grade, you had a suicide yeah. attempt. Yeah. Wow. And just, I mean, there was thoughts all throughout, all throughout my life. Um, and, but last was September, 2016. Um, I actually did go, uh, I attempted, it was like my second attempt, um, in my life. And, uh, I ended up being, uh, I was in a coma for two days. Oh um, my goodness. So, uh, that was a pretty serious one, but it's, yeah. So do you, uh, you were in a coma for two days. Um, was family around at the time? Uh, yeah, my, my mom and my sisters. Uh huh. And do you actually, I like, what is, I mean, do you remember waking up or what do you remember about kind of the, the aftermath? Um, I I remember waking up and I was intubated, so it was very confusing to me. And I was also very aware of what, I had done, uh-huh. and it, it it was really weird. Like there was a conf- there was like um there was I remember having moments of confusion, like what's going on, and then it was the realization. I was like, oh my god, I survived. And my my mom and my sisters came running, you know, to my. They were all in the room, kind of huddled, and they came to my bed, and you know, one at a time, they they started hugging me, and they're crying. And I started crying, but it was also this awareness that they were crying for a very different reason than I was crying. I was crying because I was still here. They were crying because they were thankful I was still here. Right. So it was very, you know, and I was aware of that the whole time, Mm -hmm. you know. So even waking up, you had the thought of, of wishing it, you weren't waking up. Well, it was... I, I don't, yeah, I was like, 
wishing I wasn't waking up, but it was also kind of like, it was like, oh man, I, I, I failed at this, mm. you know, like I failed at this too. Right. Uh, because leading up to it, it was just kind of a, a, a buildup of just lots of things that I was failing at or I felt I was failing at. So it was kind of like, oh, great. I, you know, this one too. How long uh, would you say that depression was that led up to a, to the suicide attempt? Uh, that one was about uh, like we like looking back with my therapist, it was like close to three months long. Okay, but it wasn't um, it wasn't a bipolar depression. It wasn't um, the bipolar. I'm sure contributed to the depression, but the depression was uh, actually was based on things happening in my life, and I had kind of come to this place of hopelessness. Uh, with what I was doing with my life and the way I was being viewed in my family and uh, just in the world was affecting how I viewed my worth in this world. And it uh, just led to a really, you know, place of just hopelessness and depression. Right. Um, Help us understand how you differentiate and distinguish um, a depression that is part of your bipolar disorder and a depression that is not. That's interesting to me. Well, I mean, there's situational depression, yeah. which is de- a depression that is based on, you know, things happening in your life and, you know, stuff your like circumstances. that. Circumstances, yep. Absolutely. Circumstances, right? With bipolar disorder, it's the, I mean, bipolar disorder is a chemical imbalance. Right. So it would be able to be uh, assisted by medication. And so for the months leading, up to the attempt, I had started noticing stuff. Um, and I, th- and my immediate thought was always, you know, I was feeling that heaviness, not to the extent that was, the, that's a, that's like a difference between the depressions. Cause with, for me at least, um, with the bipolar, it is this whole body heaviness thing with the situational that I was going through. I was able to go through things in life. I was just, you know, angry and, um, and sad and feeling like the world was against me and um, everything was just bad. But, uh, sorry, so going back to the chemical imbalance is we tried to, to, to manage the meds a little bit. Nothing was uh, really doing anything. Right. Nothing was affecting the depression. And, you know, now looking back, it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course it's not helping. The issue was like your actual mental health, not your mental illness, um, like other parts of your mental health, um, because there are other parts of our mental health besides our mental illness. And, um, and you know, that was kind of that, that was actually the kind of thing that got me into starting to like fight stigma of like bipolar and mental illness and men- and advocate for mental health because, the realization, I, it was kind of this weird thing after the suicide that I, uh, I you know, I was 5150 after, which is, you know, being hospitalized after I was, you know, out of the first hospital um, that I was taken to. And, you know, met like a bunch of people in that hospital. And so you, you were put into an inpatient program? Uh, it, yeah, but it was. I mean, it was, I was there for about a week, but there was no therapy. There was no counseling. Um, they had a psychiatrist and social worker, but it was pretty much walk around and do nothing for a few days. 
It's interesting to me how you um, describe the difference and it, it makes sense. Um, and it's really interesting to me because I think like I, for example, don't have bipolar disorder. I've had two major depressive episodes. Both were definitely major. One, yeah. w- one I definitely attribute to situational. I mean, there were many yeah. things in my life that I think caused it. And I was able to manage with medication and therapy. The second bout, which was three late, three years later, um, I really didn't even have a reason for it. I don't know. I still, to this day, I can't describe <laughs> why I went into a depression, but it was actually much, much worse. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and I, and I don't know, you know, I, th- how, the difference was with medication. I mean, I was medicated on both the second major depression. I definitely went through different, um, some different dosages and some different types of antidepressants as well. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you always, it's always about playing around with it, uh, with medication. Um, and it's, conf- it's, it's confusing. Cause you're like, how am I supposed to know the difference? <laughs> and I think I, one of the things I, I tend to start noticing now is that we, and I've started like realizing there's a distinction and it's like important, is that like there were a lot of things that I kind of not been actually dealing with. And uh, like just different events in my life and things in my life. And, you know, that, those things, those emotions that either we ignore or hold back or don't deal with or deal with like maybe improperly or whatever, they chip away from our mental health. And like I live with a mental illness, but there are other parts of my mental health that still need to be taken care of and addressed. And that what that's what makes everybody in this whole world the same is we all have mental health. We all have mental health to be aware of and take care of. So it was the thing that kind of eventually got me to start like, you know, fighting against stigma and all that stuff because I also realized that I was kind of perpetuating it within myself by not even understanding. My first thought was to go to medication with that depression because that's all I knew. And it was the automatic thought to go to medication, but it was actually because there was a, a lot of things in my life that um, were not bipolar related that were chipping away at me. And, um, and I'm sure like because of the imbalance that didn't really help the, the depression that I was going through, you know, right, like, right. And so did you, uh, you actually went to therapy and started addressing those pieces of your life? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I went back to my psychiatrist who's also my therapist that I was with before the suicide attempt. And, um, that's like so much of what we're dealing with right now. Like, I mean, we, I, I'm, you know, I'm still on my medication, but my therapy sessions are dedicated to like, delving into the stuff I hadn't been dealing with throughout life. Oh, that's awesome. Have you heard of EMDR? I have. Yeah. So I've heard that, um, EMDR, eye movement desensitization, something, um, (laughs) is, is a, an incredible therapy, particularly for dealing with issues of trauma. Yeah. Um, I actually had a therapist in high school that, uh, tried it on me and it for me it didn't uh actually do much i hear from other people though it has helped them um i think it but 
the idea behind it is is pretty awesome i would think i would probably consider trying it again um uh-huh. maybe i just wasn't in a frame a mindset at that time right right well that's a good point i mean you're in a very very different place now than right. when you were in high school um, yeah well okay. different things work for different people you know absolutely um, yeah yep hey so um tell us uh, if you could a bit about the check check Yes. Uh, so the Shack Check started uh, right, basically right after I got out of the hospital, not right after I got out of the hospital, but a couple months later, um, I decided I wanted to start speaking out about, um, you know, bipolar disorder and mental health awareness and, and suicide awareness and all that stuff. And I remember when I, um, I, it was like during a period of time where the term fact check was coming up a lot. Okay. And, um, and so I was like, oh, you know, like that's like I, w- I was also kind of thinking of this like, like this idea in dealing with it in therapy of like how often are we being completely honest with ourselves, like bluntly honest with ourselves, not meaning like we're coming down on ourselves because of something, but like we're in a situation and we're being authentic and transparent with ourselves, not just other people, but ourselves. And I was like, oh, that's like, you know, checking ourselves. It's like a fact check with yourself. And you know, I was like talking about starting a YouTube channel um, about mental health awareness. And I was like, oh, Sheck Check. Because Sheck rhymes with check. And it's like fact check. But it's like a check of me. Ah, it's, it's that's perfect. what the check is. So it like worked out like pretty well in that sense. And, and you know, I wanted, I wanted it to be like a channel where I got to – like a YouTube channel where I got to be me and, you know, be snarky and be funny and – but still have like important moments of actually teaching people things. And then kind of as the year has gone on, it's started documenting like things that I'm learning in therapy. And then I go and make a video about it and I'll be like, I'll be like, Oh, this is what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really talking about forgiveness a lot in therapy. So I'll make a video, you know, after I go through some stuff, I, I like, Oh, I'll write a script for, you know, for about forgiveness. And so there's just like, things that as I go, I, I've realized that it's actually documenting like my journey in life right now, which is kind of cool. That is, that, that is incredibly cool. And, yeah. uh, yeah, what a combination, uh, learning the pieces in therapy and then creating your, your videos that are typically pretty short, right? Yeah. They're, I mean, they started out not so short. Like they're they. I remember like my first one, I think, was called I am not a textbook definition. And it was like my first, everything with the videos, like with the editing, I've basically taught myself um, because I had no editing um, knowledge at all. So it's kind of been like learn as I go. And so like the first video I think is like 11 minutes long or something. And I think there's one minute video that's 12 minutes long, but I started learning how to like, you know, shorten the material and get to the point. And, um, and they're much shorter now, but now they're like under six minutes, basically. Yeah. Like I put one out today and it, uh, it's like under five minutes. Uh, what's the topic today? Uh, today's topic is called uh, – it was called Realativity. Okay. Um, and so it's basically the idea that, you know, while it's important to be more positive than negative in our life um, – it's awareness that basically there is a spectrum of reality in between it. And we have to find where 
we have to find a better place to be on the spectrum instead of clinging to diff to like one pole or the other. Right. It's funny. I uh, actually did watch that uh, mm. check. I have to say, and uh -oh. one of one of the things that came to my mind. Well, first of all, I loved it. I love oh, thank you. your videos are awesome. Um, it does not surprise me now hearing from you um, about your theatrical background and such, <laughs> because your video is like seriously, they are entertaining. Um, you've got a great demeanor with them, where like you said, you 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 give some real life, real tips. And at the same time, you bring a lot of humor and theater into it, and they're they're just they're phenomenal. They're entertaining, and uh, I want to put a huge plug out for them um, because you. I I think they're well worth anybody's time. I do think uh, one thing that came to my mind when I was watching the reality was uh -huh. you kind of have a penchant for creating words such as fabulously. <laughs> Flo flobulously Flobby. human. It's hard to say. Isn't it, it is a little it's tricky really to flobby. say. I like. I literally when I filmed flobul. See, I can't even do it now. <laughs> flobulously human. When I filmed it, I literally like had to do it five like that. Just that one line, and then I made sure that that was the only place I actually say it because it would just <laughs> it would mess me up throughout it. I I don't know what is up with me creating words. Do you have some others but that you can share with us? Oh, man. Um, well, there was the video. Uh, let's see. Towards the beginning, I did a video called uh, Uncomfortable Schmuncomfortable. Okay. Uh, which is not as creative as the rest. Um, let's see. I'm I like have to. I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, it's um, okay. But they are, um, they're awesome videos. Authenticity. Fothenticity. Perfect. Perfect. It's like, you know, fake authenticity. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, yeah, like, I'm trying to think if there was any other, I just, I have fun with the titles Yeah. just because I don't know. I feel like that's kind of what I'm, you know, I don't know. That's kind of my, my vibe. Um, you know, I even did one that was kind of like a playoff of like Demi Lovato song. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, talking about like all the ways we don't say I'm sorry. Right. And it was called, uh, the sorry, I'm not sorry. The sorry, not sorry syndrome. But yeah, that is funny. I have fun with them. Do you have a a particular favorite episode? Oh man, see that's like making me like pick my favorite child, and I don't have any children. Well, maybe so. maybe you could uh, do some type of poll via Twitter or via YouTube cool. to to see what the crowd thinks is that the is a good video. idea. That is a good idea. I think that would be fantastic. One of my favorite pieces, um, and I don't even think it's an entire uh, Shek Check, but it just the advertisement piece, essentially, where you walk <laughs> by a couple times really fast, and, and then you, you make the check mark. Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> – thank you. Um, I It's funny because I just – like I use my cell phone, actually, as my camera, but I downloaded like a new thing, um, a new like app that was like a better camera. And I was like, I want like an opening credit type thing. And I was like, and I had this like vision in my head of me just like walking and then looking back in the and the check check with the check mark popping up. And I was like, I need to learn how to make this happen. And you know, it oh, took it me a while, but I did. It was beautiful. That's my favorite. I know I've tweeted that one out a couple times. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so let people know how they can get there. Is it, uh, am I right with it's thecheckcheck.com? That is correct. 
So the Sheck S H E K Check C H E K. I'm sorry, C H E C K. The Sheck Check dot com. Um, and I, I, you know, I noticed, and I wanted to ask you about this. Um, when I went there, there was a spot to go to the video blog, right? That's yes. where the videos are. And then I did notice that at least one of the videos, uh, I could click on one that popped up on the screen and it brought me to YouTube. So is your YouTube channel different than the shekcheck.com? Well, the shekcheck.com is, is my website, but it is the videos that I put on. I use YouTube to post the videos. So um, the YouTube right now doesn't currently have like its own uh, like solid URL that I okay. could like just spout off. However, if you go to www.thesheckcheck.com, um, at the top of the screen, it will uh, a little thing will drop down and it will ask you, have you subscribed to the Sheck Check on YouTube? And it'll send you right over there. Okay, cool. And, but it's the uh, same videos except on uh, my website. I also have uh, uh, basically, I, I'll do like a Facebook Live every now and then. So... Um, I'll post them on my website. I can't get those on um, my YouTube. Okay. How many different uh, videos would you say you've published? Ooh. Um, see, now I'm going to have to cheat and look. Uh, yeah, that would well, be awesome. Uh, yeah, I've put uh, – let's see. Um, it's telling me – I. it's not telling me. Um, uh, let's see. It looks like I have about – Close to 30. Okay, awesome. Wow. And I did how, not realize I had done that many. How frequently do you try to post them? Um, I try to keep it regular, like every at least every two weeks. I'm trying to do a new thing where I do a um, – where I, go, I do – I call it a quote check, which is like taking a quote and doing like a video in less than a minute and a half. Yep, I've um, seen a couple talking of Talking about it. And um, so I'm trying to do those – uh, every week, but the bigger subjects are usually a couple weeks because it takes me a bit of time to get the scripts together and or the script to write the script and then to edit it. Yeah, well, they are fantastic. So again, I want to give a shout out and say, go to thesheckcheck.com and subscribe to Era's Sheck's uh, YouTube channel because they're phenomenal. Thank you, Thank you um, so much. Hey, before we end and wrap up, uh, what kind of words of advice would you have for Others who maybe they were recently uh, diagnosed with depression or bipolar disorder or are going through a tough time right now. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> it's, it feels like it. I mean, I can understand and I know you can understand. It feels like it's the end of the world. It feels like it's the worst thing in the world. Keep taking a breath. Keep going. It is not the end of the world. Yeah. So true. And it, you will get better. Exactly. Yeah. It's so hard to see in those moments though. Like, and I, so it's like always hard because like I, I go, if somebody had said that to me, I'd be like, shut up, like, shut up. Don't say that to me. But it, looking back every, the one thing that you have proven to yourself, every single person you have survived. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Erez, hey, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be on the show. And thank you again for all the work you do. And if you could publish more than once every couple weeks, uh, <laughs> we would be watching them. I'm telling you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. You too. All right. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.